Loving God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey everyone, this is Jason Elam. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here. And I'm really grateful for those of you who uh, have subscribed and followed us on the podcast, those of you who have rated and reviewed it on iTunes and on other platforms, for those of you who have connected with me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, for those who have joined our Facebook group, Messy Conversations, and are engaging with the topics there. I'm grateful for all of you who have become patrons over on Patreon, and you support this podcast. This podcast could not exist without your support. I'm so grateful for those of you who are patrons of the podcast. Today, I want to mention a new opportunity to you over through Kickstarter. Uh, I'm about to publish a book here in the next couple of months. It's almost ready to go. I am so excited about the message of this book. This is the story of my spiritual nervous breakdown, how my life burned to the ground, my faith burned to the ground, and how God and I partnered together to rebuild it. This is a book of hope for everybody on that deconstruction journey. And I know how important hope can be. Sometimes what somebody really needs to hear is you are not alone. You're going to be okay. Well, this is a firsthand account of somebody who survived the chaos of deconstruction, reconstruction. And I want to get this book in the hands of as many people as possible. Would you help me do that? Would you go to MessySpirituality.org and click over to our Kickstarter for this book? We've got until January 31st to raise the funds to help me finish the book so I can get it to the publisher and get it printed and ready to go. I want to get the copy of this book in the hands of everyone who needs it, whether they can afford it or not. And everyone who buys into this Kickstarter project helps us give a copy away. And I would love for you to be a part of making this book happen. Would you check it out? MessySpirituality.org and then click the link to our Kickstarter and you'll learn all about the project there. Thank you so much for listening, and I am excited about this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's our interview with the naked pastor, David Hayward. My guest today has a master's in theological studies from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a diploma in religious studies and ministry from McGill University in Montreal, and a diploma in university teaching from the University of New Brunswick. He served the church as a local church pastor for 30 years before leaving the ministry in 2010. Like all graffiti artists, Naked Pastor uses words and images to challenge the status quo and offer hope for those who struggle and suffer under it. He founded and facilitates The Lasting Supper, an online community for those looking for a safe alternative to church. And it is a real honor to welcome Naked Pastor David Hayward the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Glad, glad to be here. I have been influenced by your art for many years. You have impacted me more than I can even express to you. And so I'm so grateful for you and for your time today. Let's go beyond the bio a bit. Can you tell us, did you grow up in an atmosphere of faith? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I was baptized as a, as a baby Anglican, Episcopal to Americans, I guess. Basically grew up around the church in and out. We moved a lot and we weren't all that consistent. But when I was uh, in my mid-teens, that's when we became real devoted churchgoers. And that was it. I, you know, I came 
I became a Christian, a born again one, <laughs> let's say, in a, in a Baptist church, and then from there went into Pentecostal, and then so on and so forth. So, yeah, I, you know, it was a kind of a Christian family, but then we were born again Christian in my mid teens. So, at what point did you start feeling a call to ministry, and how did that come to you? Well, uh, I never really, I always struggled with my, my call to ministry, to be honest. I, I went to Bible college and to get a, a music degree. I ended up switching majors to Bible and theology. The, from there, I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and got my, my master's in, in biblical studies, New Testament studies, particularly under Gordon Fee. And I was planning on going and getting my PhD and becoming a professor of New Testament studies. That was my goal. From there, I went, I was going to, long story short, I went to uh, University of Toronto and began my PhD program. And then uh, Lisa and I, uh, she got pregnant and I ended up having to scramble and figure out how I was going to take care of my family financially and so on. And we were given an opportunity to go to McGill University where I could take a diploma in ministry in eight months, I'd be finished, I would be ordained, and I would be given a church. And so it was a fast track to securing my family and ensuring that uh, I could take care of them. Also, becoming a, a pastor became my vocation. So it was kind of like I, I went in sideways, but you know, I love my job, even though I struggled with my call. All through my ministry, I struggled with it, but I took it seriously and I dove into the deep end and want to do it well. And so that's what I ended up doing for the next approximately 30 years of my life. Wow. Well, anybody who's been a local church pastor for 30 years uh, probably has some scars to back that up. For you, what were the best parts of being a pastor and what were the greatest challenges? Well, one of my mentors and somebody I'd, I've spoken with several times and met with and I've gone to hear speak and read all of his books and still have all of his books is Eugene Peterson. And if anybody's a pastor, uh, they ought to know who that is. Absolutely. And he was kind of my my model and and spiritual pastoral mentor, I would say, for being a pastor. So he helped me to see the ministry, pastoral ministry as a beautiful thing. And so, you know, just grassroots, caring for people, just teaching, providing safe spaces for people to grow, to be themselves. And that, that was what was most beautiful, just being in relationship and in community, authentic community with other people and validating their unique spiritual journeys. And um, that's what was most pleasurable to me, what was most satisfying to me. I love validating people's journeys. I think each person is responsible for their own spiritual life. And I just didn't really uh, enjoyed validating people in their own search and their own journey and their own endeavors to uh, grow and mature. And that's what I love doing most. The ch the, I think the greatest challenges was that I would, I, I would get bored, I guess, with not bored, I think the word is there were people that reacted against. There were people who really wanted me to feed them the 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 status quo orthodox menu. You know, this whole idea of being there for individuals and validating their journeys and encouraging each one in their own search and everything kind of cut against the grain of people who felt that 
you know, we all needed to be following one way and it, it all needed to look the same and I needed to be teaching consistently and orthodox pattern and, and all this kind of thing. I think that's what graded me the most and frustrated me the most. And in the end, the reason I left the, the ministry was because my own spiritual journey, my own desire to be spiritually independent was met with opposition and people were questioning. And, you know, it's almost like I'd found that imaginary, invisible line that I should not cross and realize my time was up because the congregation or the the important people in the congregation, let's put it that way, concluded that I was no longer compatible with them theologically and it was time for me to to go. So that's that's why I left. So on the one hand, I loved validating other people's journeys and I expected that for, m- for myself. And when it wasn't given, then I, I felt it was time for me to go. Uh, in my exposure to your work, you've been a strong ally for the LGBTQ plus community for the last several years that I've followed you. Has it always been the case or was that a shift for you at some point? No, it hasn't always been the case. I always, I, uh, you know, I had struggled with it for many years, you know, and I started like with most people who grew up evangelical, that it was a sin and, you know, the whole, an abomination even. And then I grew from that to uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. And then I grew from that where I actually met and became friends with people who were gay or transgender or whatever. And that stretched my theology or challenged my theology to the point where now I'm, I'm full on ally. So it's been a journey for me. And I do remember, I do remember when it, you know, it's, it's okay to theologize uh, in your ivory tower when you're untouched by the lives of, of people who are LGBTQ plus or, um, or transgender or whatever. Uh, But when they come into your life and uh, are members of your congregation or want to be, then, you know, that's where, you know, it gets real and you have to make a decision. And my decision was, it was very clear that we're all equal and deserve equal rights and access and all that. And so I became a full-on ally. It was before I left the ministry, actually. I'm so grateful that you did. You uh, helped me make that transition as well. Oh, yeah, really? I I had, while I was pastoring, several good friends that I'd had for years came to me one after another, uh, really several within a period of one year, Uh and came out out to me uh, at private dinners. And uh, because I had told them as, you know, a pastor or a friend Mm -hmm. that there was nothing they could tell me that would change how I felt about them. And so they trusted me with that before they really told many other people at all, trusting that I would love them. And when my theology came crashing into just love of people and that desire to validate everybody's experience, I really had to unpack that. And so your work has, has really helped me to navigate that. I I do feel like deconstruction kind of felt for me like a spiritual nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't like some well-charted, you know, nine-week experience. It was like my house burned down. But at the same time, I'm so grateful for voices like yours that help us navigate those things without becoming defensive and without feeling attacked in any way. Uh, But I can only imagine how our LGBT 
brothers and sisters have felt attacked. Yeah. If if our theology being questioned makes us feel that way, how would our very lifestyle, how would our very identity exactly being attacked make us feel? So I'm grateful for people like you who've who've led the way in inclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. No, it, it became, you know, it became very real for me when I became friends and, you know, met people who were gay or who were transgender or uh, lesbian or asexual or, you know, just different sexualities, different genders and, and gender fluid or, and, and it forced me to, you know, if I cared all, at all about my fellow people, <laughs> I had to I had to accept them and love them for who they were and not as I thought they should be or wish them to be. So, for, you know, it was when, you know, I, I have I, when somebody come, makes a comment on my blog, let's say about Muslims or about gay people or, or whatever, I'm pretty sure I can often tell if they're if there's any gay people in their lives or Muslim people in their lives or, or whatever. Because when I, I, for example, I taught Muslims in uh, English as a second language and um, wonderful, some of the best people I've ever met. And it changes the way you think about stereotypes, right? So that's the way it was for me with the LGBTQ plus community. Absolutely. These were human beings created to be loved with dignity and purpose. Mm -hmm. And we, at least I had reduced them to theological concepts to be argued and uh, sides to be defeated. And yeah. uh, my heart breaks now yeah. at uh, where I was for so long, and I just couldn't see uh, that Jesus was actually on the other side of that uh, equation. I remember one Sunday, there was a, a lesbian couple. They came to me and, and said, look, uh, you know I'm lesbian. Yeah. And said, do you mind if we come to your church? I'm like, no, I'd love you to come to our church. And I was a part of the vineyard. Uh, I was a pastor in the Vineyard Church at the time. And the Vineyard is, it, it kind of is where we will love you, but you're not allowed to be in same-sex relationships or marriage, or you're not allowed to be in leadership or, or whatever, generally speaking. And, but I was like, yeah, please come. Cause at that time I was a, I was an ally and, and I, I felt that they were completely valid as human beings and, um, had the right to choose. Uh, who they were and be who they were. So they came to church, but I remember one Sunday when they were holding hands and I knew, okay, you know, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like I didn't have a problem with it, but I knew others would. And it was like, it's okay if you are gay, but don't let us see it. Right. Right. Don't rub our noses in your gayness. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's when I knew it was going to be a stretch for our community, but that's the way it always is. And, and, and that's the way it was for me. I mean, the first time I became friends with some gay men, it was like, I, I knew this was a stretch for me, but this is what love does, right? L love has to stretch. Love has to grow to, to be more and more inclusive. So you're pastoring a church, your beliefs have been shifting. Were they shifting the entire time that you were pastoring or was that a specific season? No, my, my beliefs were, shifting. Uh, I'll tell you when my deconstructions really, I think when it really started, and that was back in seminary, the day I was graduating from seminary. I, for some reason, I was reading a book that wasn't on the syllabus. I don't know why, but it was about the sayings of Jesus in the gospels. And it was very text critical. When I finished the book, I realized, see, up to that point, my, the cornerstone of my theology was all built upon the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. 
that for me was the cornerstone, the foundation upon which all my theology was built. I believe that the Bible was the inerrant, infallible Word of God. It was that, that was my belief. And uh, right up through Bible college and right up through seminary until that last day when I realized I was questioning the inspiration of Scripture. And it was like a Jenga block tower for me. It was like every that was all sitting on that one block, the inspiration of Scripture. And when that was removed, everything started to teeter and totter. And that's when my deconstruction started. And it was a slow kind of glacial melt over my whole ministry. <laughs> so my, you know, for some people, deconstruction begins and then in a few years it's over. For me, it was a few decades of, of just slowly you know, questioning my beliefs. And, it, you know, the entire time it was, it was filled with theological angst and anguish because I wanted to know the truth. And I struggled and struggled. I meditated, I read, I researched, I studied, I wrote, I, I did everything I could to try to figure this out. And then in 2009, I, I finally came to peace of mind. It just settled on me like, like a, a nice, warm blanket and my mind was at rest and I was at peace. And then that's when I started writing about what I'd felt. And, and then that's when people started noticing that I, I was no longer really as theologically sound as they hoped I was or thought I should be as a pastor. And I was starting to hear from other pastors. Uh, my members were hearing from other churches. I was hearing from my uh, authorities saying that I should have my posts edited first before I publish them and, you know, all this kind of thing. And I knew my time was up. And, and a year later, I was gone. I know it was really interesting for me that while I was pastoring and deconstructing, one of the things that, that you know, key leaders or people in the church enjoyed the most about my presence there was that I would push the envelope. But it seems like everybody has a boundary that they cannot get crossed easily. We had some folks that were just our right hand people in the church that I love like family. But man, once we started talking about questioning eternal conscious torment or full inclusion of our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters, it was just a, a, a bridge they couldn't cross. Were there specific issues in your pastorate that just brought that to the forefront and said, you know what, we just cannot continue anymore in this relationship? There were rumors starting to go around, and I was hearing them through other people, that I no longer believed in God, that I'd become an atheist, that I didn't believe in the Holy Spirit, that I didn't believe in prayer, you know, that basically I'd gone completely off the Christian rails. And it was because of the way I was writing, where I was questioning absolutely everything, because what I'd seen in a dream, what I'd seen was that we are all deeply connected at a fundamental level. Um, that we're all one. And what we perceive as separateness or division is actually just a different way of thinking. We just, it's just our thoughts. They're just words that seem to separate us. We're all one. We're all experiencing the same reality. We all interpret it through our own ideological or theological lens. And then we all explain it through our own different language and words. And when I saw that, it was a profound experience where I saw we're, we're all one. We're all connected. 
And it's just thoughts and words that seem to divide us and separate us. And I'm talking about Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and, you know, you name it. We're all connected in one and experiencing the same thing through different ways. And uh, this, when I started writing about this and started talking about how, the, like, the story of the Gospels or the mythology of creation and, you know, all these kinds of things, then that's where a lot of people, red flags went up for them that I was no longer truly abiding by the statement of faith of the vineyard. And um, they're probably, in one way, they're right. In another way, you know, I was thinking larger than, and which included everything. They saw me as actually departing from the Orthodox uh, track. So that, that's what ended up me having to agree that we were no longer theologically compatible and go our separate ways. Were you tempted to start another church under a different banner or plant a church that was just non-denominational? Or did you just know, I'm done as a pastor? I, I felt done. I'd, I'd left ministry a couple of times before and uh, always ended up finding my way back in as a pastor. But I'll, it's a very, that's a very complicated question, as you may know, because for pastors to leave the ministry, it's, it's very traumatic. It's not like leaving just any job. You, you, you're leaving your vocation. You're leaving the only way you know how to work. You know, you have no idea how to create a resume that looks half decent because, you know, all you've studied and all you've known and all you've experienced is ministry. And for, for many pastors leaving the ministry, it's just overwhelmingly depressing to look ahead to figure out what kind of a job or vocation or whatever, how you're going to bring income in. So I'll be honest, when I left the ministry the last time, 2010, there was a couple of times I thought, you know, I, the only way I know how to make a living is by being a pastor. So I did wonder if I should go back in or try something different or whatever. Some people might say I'm, I'm doing that now online. Some people, some people accuse me of being an online pastor. And, you know, I am, my handle and brand name is Naked Pastor. And I do have an online community called The Lasting Supper, as you mentioned. So, you know, some people might, might claim that I'm still acting like a pastor. And in some ways it does feel similar, but uh, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel anywhere near the same as as being a local pastor. So at first, when I was very insecure and financially at risk and everything I did, I was tempted with the thought of going back in, but I resisted it. I know that temptation very well. How would you describe your current relationship to the local church? Uh, free, for one thing. Number one is free. I have a very free relationship with the church now. I'm not committed to go anywhere. Nobody expects me. But there, there is one church, a vineyard actually. Not, it's about an hour away though, so we don't get there that often. Lisa's a nurse and works shifts, so it's not very often that we get to go. But it's one church I feel comfortable being at. We have friends there. The pastor and his wife, they're very gracious. There's no expectation or pressure for you to be or perform or do any thing when you're there when worship's happening you can just sit there or you can stand and or and when the sermon's going on it's very conversational back and forth and uh, it's an affirming church as well which is rubbing the vineyard the wrong way but it's very affirming and even the pastors even performed a couple same-sex marriages 
against the vineyard's wishes. But anyway, it's it's that's the kind of church I would feel comfortable in because it's very uh, gracious and, and freeing. And that's that's what I think builds the best kind of authentic community. So I'll, we visit there once in a while. In fact, we're going there, and uh, not this weekend, but the next weekend, and uh, we hang out. And, you know, it's very, very nice. And we catch up with some friends, and we hear a sermon and hear worship music and go home. But uh, it's very different from the way we used our relationship used to be, which was, you know, 24-7 and 100% blood-on-the-line commitment, right? So in our current series, we're talking to people like yourself about their hopes and dreams for the church in the future. What does the church you dream of look like? Well, this is something I always worked towards when I, when I was a pastor of a local church. I really believe in community. I think that's the church's greatest asset, actually, in the world is its ability to provide community. And I, I say potential ability, actually, to provide community, authentic community. And that's where people are free to be who they are and to be themselves and to, at the same time, be responsible to other people. And this, to me, is the big question. If a church is asking this question, then I think it's healthy. And the question is, how can I be free without violating your freedom? I think if a church is trying to figure out how to do that, it's on its way to being an authentic community. How can I be free without violating your freedom? And that's what kind of community I strive to build. That's the kind of community The Lasting Supper is, even though it's an online community where people are free, but we learn through give and take and and testing and trying and experimenting how to how to be free without violating another person's freedom to be who they are. So if if a church can struggle with that question and I think actually that's the political question as well, not just a church question but a political and social question is how can people be free to be who they are while not violating the freedom of other people. I think that's you know, the, the world community needs to be asking that question. And I think healthy communities are asking that question. As I said, that, that's the church's potential greatest asset is providing community. And if, if they can do that, then, you know, I don't care. P- people think I hate religion and I hate the church. I do not. I, 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 I love the church. The church has, you know, served me very well. And I serve the church and I, I would love to see it work. But uh, it's very rare to see a church struggle with, uh, you know, how to let people be free. Because, to be honest, it, it it's chaotic. It's it's uncon it's unmanageable and uncontrollable. And uh, churches like to control people and manage people. And unfortunately, you can't have a well-oiled machine as well as a collection of volitionally free people who are trying to figure out how to live together. So that, for me, is my primary idea of what a church can be. Uh, and I've, I've seen it, and so I know it works. I know it can work. So that, that, that's my, my, number one, my number one concern about the church. And I think, I think that's what you see mostly in my cartoons is when a lot of my negative, more negative cartoons are challenging churches and pastors and leaders that are 
manipulating and controlling and even abusing its members, their members. And on the positive side, where I show people who are showing backbone and courage and spiritual independence in the face of authority. So that's basically, I think, my number one concern is freedom. Well, I love that. You recently released a cartoon you've entitled Father Forgive Them, depicting Jesus on the cross looking down at a valley full of churches. Uh, I thought that was a really powerful image. In your mind, what are some specific sins the church needs forgiveness for? Huh. Well, I'll make it personal because what I was just talking about, freedom. I felt I was free in the church I was pastoring. I gave people freedom to grow, and I expected the same favor in return. But when I was growing in a direction or in a way or beyond the line, imaginary line, invisible line that somebody had set for me, then my freedom was not appreciated and not respected, and they tried to rein me back in. And so I left. And that's what's happening with a lot of people in the church. Uh, a lot of the people I know, a lot of the members of the Lasting Supper, for example, they're people who wanted to grow and were told they couldn't grow that way or in that way or in that direction or beyond this point. And, and so with great courage and with great self-awareness and self-care, they, they felt the only way that they could continue growing is by leaving. And, and so, it's 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 sad and unfortunate the church you know looks at it as a huge problem all these people leaving the church and they blame competition with other forms of entertainment or they blame the consumer mentality or they blame people having short attention spans or they blame i don't know what they blame they blame all kinds of things when i think it's i have another cartoon where somebody's kicking people out of the church and they're turning around talking to somebody else saying, why is everybody leaving the church? <laughs> I actually think it's just like that. The, the, the church is, they're not actively kicking people out, but they are by their neglect of people's freedom and actually violating people's freedom and trying to limit their freedom and restrain their freedom. And, and uh, that's causing people to leave. And if they would just let go of the reins, you know, just let people be and let people grow. Uh, I think um, people would put up with the, the different kinds of music and the different styles of preaching and the different kind of furniture and decor and bells and whistles and smoke and mirrors. And I, they put up with all that stuff if they feel accepted and free in a community of people who accept them and are free and they're trying to figure out how to be free together, I think I think that would be powerful. But uh, I think that's the number one transgression right now. Why is freedom so threatening to institutional religion? Well, because it's the opposite of control, right? It's the opposite of uh, being able to manage people. I, and like I know that from experience. I know when you experiment with freedom in a congregation, it's a mess. But it's a dynamic mess. I mean, it's it's a creative chaos. <laughs> and you know what? I'm an artist, so I like I kind of like creative chaos, right? Amazing things get created in chaos. Even like uh, you know, uh, even the creation story, it's it's chaos, right? But uh, a lot of leaders don't like chaos. They like order and control and management 
and expectations and cooperation and, and all these kinds of things. So I think that's freedom is just very threatening to authority. You coach folks who are going through deconstruction. How do you recommend people start to heal from the wounds received in religious settings? Well, first of all, I always try to make it clear, forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. There's a difference between the two. I can forgive those people who hurt me. It doesn't mean I need to reconcile with them in, in, and work side by side with them in the same garden because they're going to hit me again with the hoe. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're going to hit me again with the shovel or the rake or whatever. Uh, and, and so you stay at your end of the row and I'll stay at my end of the row. But I, I forgive you, but you know, I, I, can't, I can't trust you in the same way. I always make that clear. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. And forgiveness is something I do to release them from and, and to release me from them, to release them from me and to release me from them and to let that go. That doesn't mean I need to invite them back into my life and um, allow them to run all over me again. So I make that clear. The other thing I, I talk about is a lot of people I, I see reject their evangelical conservative fundamentalist past um, they're ashamed of it. They're embarrassed by it. They're humiliated because of it. And they just can't believe they were so duped and brainwashed and, and succumbed to all that and submitted to all that. And they're just so overwhelmed with shame and guilt. Uh, and they just w reject it all and, and just want to forget it. But I, I encourage them to, for me, I think the healthiest way, sure, you're going to go through that stage. But get to the eventually, hopefully, somebody will get to the place where they accept that person who they were. You did, you were doing the best that you could at the time. You were acting on the best knowledge that you had at the time. You were acting the way you were out of integrity and, and sincerity at the time. This is who you were. This is a part of your story. This is a chapter in your, in your novel. And you can't just rip it out. It, you Somehow, you have to figure out a way to integrate it into your life, to make it a part of your story, to, so that you can, in a healthy way, individuate as a mature human being. It's like Carl Jung and, you know, any depth psychologist would say, you have to sort of figure out a way to integrate what you think is the dark side or the shadow of your life, so that you can move on in wholeness. It's a part of your story. You can't just rip it out. You can't, you can't just neglect it or ignore it or deny it. It's there. And so you have to figure out a way to say, this is who I was. This is a part of my story. It's made me who I am today and move on from there. You know, you don't have to be proud of it, but you don't have to neglect it either, but you can accept it and embrace it as a child that you were or the young person that you were and say, this is a part of my story, and I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't go through that. And, and the amazing thing is a lot of the people I know who are deconstructing or who have deconstructed are amazingly deep, mature, wise, compassionate people. They're, they're far better because of where they've been and where they've come to. And, and if they can embrace that and accept it, then and, and that includes all the pain and the suffering and the abuse that they've, that they've gone through. To, to somehow sew it into the fabric of the tapestry of their journey story. Yeah, absolutely. 
You have an incredibly moving series focusing on a character you call Sophia. Can you tell us what inspired that series? That's one of my proudest projects, to be honest with you. Um, I've been an artist for as far back as I can remember as a little kid. I've been drawing and and, th- and things, but I, I ended up becoming an artist mainly, even though I was doing cartoons, which are these silly, simple black and white, you know, figures. Uh, I also do these sort of very well, I think they're very moody kind of watercolors. When I left the ministry, it was about about a half a year later or so. When I one Sunday afternoon, I, I didn't go to church that day, which was you know that was one weird thing to get used to. It's not going to church on Sunday. I've come to love my Sunday mornings now. They're amazingly peaceful and quiet. But um, I just sat down with a paper and pen, pen, and I just started drawing and without even thinking. It was almost like unconscious, you know, just stream of consciousness kind of drawing. And um, when I was done, my wife looked at it and said, what, what's that? Like, you've, that's so weird for you. <laughs> and it was a picture of a little girl holding up a teddy bear to a big grizzly bear that's towering over her. And that one's called Fearless. And I thought, I don't know, I just, just drew it. And, and then Every week after that, I would draw another one, and then I'd draw another one, and then I would draw another one. And then one day, I was drawing the one where she's standing before the mouth of a cave, and it's covered in vines, and um, it's called Cave, where I've been drawing this woman, or young girl, woman, or young woman in, in the wilderness setting. And this one, she's standing before the mouth of a cave covered in vines, and I realized I'm, I'm drawing my story. This is about me, you know, escaping from oppression and control and, and being limited. And, and this is all about my liberation. And immediately her name came to me, Sophia, which is Greek for wisdom. And it also represented my inner my inner kind of anima, my, my inner female or my soul or my spirit and my inner wisdom. And so it, I ended up drawing uh, 59 drawings and write a med- writing a meditation with each one. And basically it's the story of me leaving the ministry and leaving the church and deconstructing and coming to a place of moving out of feeling trapped, moving through all the shame and guilt and fear uh, finding my courage, finding my strength, finding my independence, and finding my freedom. And so I put it together in a book called The Liberation of Sophia, which you can find on uh, Amazon. It's got 59 drawings, and each one has a meditation. And it's my bestseller, too. It's my best-selling book. But yeah, it's just an amazing kind of uh, stream of consciousness that really began unconsciously. I didn't really know what I was doing, and it dawned on me that I was drawing my own, my own journey. Pretty amazing. It is. A couple of weeks ago, Paul Young was on and he was talking about Mac kind of in in the shack, representing his own personal journey. And I think that's when it kind of hit me that maybe Sophia was your journey. And uh, that just gave me even more appreciation for that series. I'm so grateful for it. Listeners, we're going to link to that book in the show notes so you can have a copy for yourself. It's really special. David, another character or personality that you focus on quite a bit in your work is Jesus. Who is Jesus to you, and what does he represent in your work? I have 
come a long way in my ideas about Jesus. I've been all around and around the block again and again and again. I think people, if they would analyze my thinking about Jesus, would conclude that I am have a mystical theology about Jesus, that Jesus is like the gospel stories and, and the New Testament and everything elevates this this man Jesus to the person of Christ but this this Christ for me is a universal power or a universal person or a universal being or reality let's say universal reality and so when i when i show Jesus in historical context for whatever i'm using the 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 gist of the the stories of the gospel to springboard myself or launch myself into the discussion about what the spirit of Jesus is trying to say, or what the spirit of Jesus is doing, or what the spirit of Jesus is is saying, not trying to say. And so uh, when I when I'm referring to Jesus or I show Jesus uh, in different another series I have is the images of Christ, where I show Jesus as different people, maybe gay, maybe a, as a woman, maybe as a a brown baby uh, in a cage, or maybe as a street person, or maybe as a teenager, or, or whatever. For me, it's me depicting the the spirit of Christ in all things, and I I do believe that the spirit of Christ the, the um, is is in all things. And when the Bible talks, and, and these were some of the verses that really provoked me all the way through my ministry and all the way through my meditation life and all that was verses like God in Christ was reconciling all things to himself or or a God who is the all in all or in him we live and move and have our being. These kind of overwhelming mystical proclamations about the, the spirit of Christ or God that is all-inclusive and universal. That's that to me is what the the spirit of Christ is. So today, I think the spirit of Christ is all about inclusion and justice and equality and compassion and you know freedom. All these things. As I'm, am I about as clear as mud? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that was really clear. It reminds me a lot of I think where Richard Rohr is trying to take us in his latest book, The Universal Christ. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It sounded uh, sounded like that stream. So uh, I appreciate that perspective so much. And I'm so grateful. Um, I think it's Richard Rohr who said something to the effect of uh, one of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity is to be able to see Christ in everyone. And it sounds like you're there. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And it comes through in your work for real. I would imagine that someone who draws images of Jesus as a gay person or a brown child in a cage gets a lot of pushback. How, how do you respond to the vitriol that gets spewed your direction when you make the assertion that Christ is in everyone, including people that we, church has often excluded from the club? Well, I do get it a lot. Uh, I, I was just dealing with one person this morning, actually, who you know didn't like one of my cartoons. And I think it was about... I'll tell you the, the the cartoons that offend the most people. First of all, it's LGBTQ cartoons. Then it's women cartoons, believe it or not, uh, cartoons that elevate women to equal status and roles and all that. Uh, a lot of men don't like that. The Bible, when you question the Bible, 
uh, the inerrancy or infallibility or inspiration of the Bible. But then um, when, when I get into politics, let's say, and because I, like I said this morning to someone, if they're saying, I wish you wouldn't get political. And I'm like, if your spirituality isn't political, it's sterile. You know, if you look at the Gospels, the Jesus couldn't help but get involved in politics and Paul either, or John the Baptist, or <laughs> Stephen, or, you know, any of the prophets in the Old Testament or characters in the Old Testament. You, if your spiritual, if your spirituality is healthy, I think you're going to get involved in politics. It can't be helped. Yeah, people don't seem to have a problem with that until you're taking on their politics. What they're really saying is, I don't like your politics. Well, and that's exactly what I say. But I'll, t- I'll tell you this. It's a challenge, but I genuinely try to answer it in a kind way and just to be kind. Because I'll tell you, some of my best friends now were my worst enemies before. And they've changed their minds and teamed up with me now. In fact, some of the members of the Lasting Supper used to hate my guts. And and now now uh, we're, you know, they appreciate my work. And I think a lot of it's because I never uh, shot them down. I never humiliated them or never disrespected them. I, I try to be respectful and try to be kind. Then there's just some people who just like being trolls. They just like being mean. They think, I don't know, for some reason, well, I, I shouldn't say they like to. I say they think they're doing the right thing by being mean. Sometimes I, I've, I've had to block people just because they're being nasty. They might not think they're being nasty. They might think they're speaking for God or, you know, being a prophet or, you know, exercising their right to correct people who are destroying civilization or whatever. But uh, I always try to be kind. And if it doesn't work after several tries and after several attempts and after several warnings, then I'll eventually have to ask them to leave. And if they don't, I'll, I'll block. That doesn't happen very often, but it, it does happen once in a while. One of the sources of real shame in my own life focused on the issue of money. I came across your book, Money is Spiritual, on your Instagram feed one day, and I ordered it and read it. It's incredibly helpful for all of us who were raised with a mindset of scarcity. What inspired that book from you? And who did you write it for? First of all, I wrote it for myself because I grew up in a very kind of religious family and evangelical. And then um, I went to Pentecostal church and sort of two kinds of attitudes about money were served to me like many people. One is Jesus was poor. We need to be like Jesus who didn't even have a place to lay his head. And yet look how much he accomplished. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even though I don't have a penny to my name. Right. That's one attitude. The, the other attitude is the health wealth gospel where God wants you to succeed. He wants you to be happy. God wants you to have all the money that you can get. And uh, he wants to bless you and prosper you. And um, I found that one less convincing than the poverty one. (laughs) So I actually chose the poverty one. And, um, you know, I even remember singing John Michael Talbot's song, Lady Poverty, come bless me tonight or something like that. And actually vowing and swearing and, you know, that I would uh, choose a life of poverty. And, you know, Thomas Merton was one of my heroes who took a vow of poverty as a Benedictine monk, right? Or a Trappist monk. So, and these were kind of my heroes and, you know, Gandhi and 
Mother Teresa and all these people who I thought were poor and and yet accomplished so much. So uh, by the time I left the ministry, I literally, Lisa and I literally had to file for bankruptcy um, because we just struggled financially for through the whole our whole ministry. And um, like many pastors do, right? I, I just struggled. So now I'm trying to make it as an artist, right? Um, after I left the ministry and trying to make it as a writer and, and as a community facilitator online and all this stuff. And I was having such a hard time asking people for money, even for stuff I was selling. I'll tell you, my Achilles heel was if somebody would say, I can't believe you're asking for money. Jesus wouldn't do that. That would kill me for like four days. It would, it would kill me. I couldn't do a thing. It would just totally immobilize me. I thought this just isn't just this isn't healthy. Like this isn't right. This isn't normal. And and so I was reading books about money and appreciating money. Some of them quite reasonable, and some of them just as stupid as health wealth gospel stuff. And and um, you know like uh, the secret and everything, uh, where it's you know you just have to tap into some magical fairy land and you'll make it. And so I I. There's two extremes out in the world too, right? So I, I was reading up. I was going to conferences about money, um, people speaking about how to make money and how to do well with money and changing your attitudes about money. And finally, after about 10 years, I guess, it's, getting, it's coming up 10 years now, uh, I'd say nine years when I was starting to write the book, I thought, you know, my, I've healed myself a lot. I've cured myself a lot of my unhealthy attitudes about money i need to write down like like some writers write to figure out what they think right so i actually wrote the book to figure out what i think <laughs> and uh so i i wrote 30 meditations uh one for each day of the month roughly and <clears throat> wrote some questions and answers and kind of things so that you can uh, read each meditation per day for a month. And hopefully by the end of it, you'll be healed too from your financial woes. <laughs> no, from your unhealthy attitudes about money. So I go into, actually, uh, I'm, I'm changing the title of the book. Really? Yeah, because I upset a lot of people. Um, I, I, I was promoting the book, Money is Spiritual. And people were like, oh, there you go. We knew it. You were a latent health wealth preacher all the, all the time. And you, you just want to, you know, you're just uh, grabbing after our money, just like all the other preachers. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You got to read the book. That's not what it's about at all. And so the, the title's misleading. The title's misleading because when I say money is spiritual, what I, people think I mean is, you can use your spirituality to get rich. When what I mean is, uh, let's remove the taboo and the woo-woo and all the spooky stuff and all the mythology and bad attitudes and everything about money and just treat it as an object of value, uh, that it's just as spiritual as the food I eat. That's basically what I'm trying to say. So I need to change the title. What are you going to change it to, do you know? I don't know yet. Okay, but uh, I, I I do want to change the title and and um, make it available again. Did you buy the actual physical book or the a PDF? Yeah, I have the physical book. Oh, you do. Okay. Well, I'm gonna. It's gonna come out with a new title and a title page uh, cover. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. I'm glad I got it when I did because I really needed it. Well, it's helped a lot of people. The people who bothered to read the book rather than just uh, get thrown off by the title. It's actually 
helped a lot of people. And a lot of them are uh, pastors who left the ministry, people who are artists and spiritual as well, who have a hard time asking for money for their art. It's just very, very helpful. And like, so one of the stories is, you remember this, I always admired Gandhi. And I went through my Gandhi phase, Lisa calls it my Gandhi phase, where I got rid of all my clothes except for one set of clothes. <laughs> I would eat only one bowl of oh one kind of food every day. I wasn't using shampoo or deodorant or anything. I I was meditating for hours every day. Like I, I was, I don't do things half measure. Must have been a lot of fun to live with in that phase. Yeah, well, actually, it just about destroyed our marriage, actually, to be honest with you. Right, I'm sure. Yeah. But then I, I read this biography of uh, Gandhi. And at one point, the journalist is asking questions at the ashram about Gandhi and about how poor Gandhi is. And he only has one set of clothes and one bowl to eat out of, one staff walking stick, a pair of sandals and his... Uh, Sutras, I think, is Bible, uh, the equivalent Hindu Bible. And um, he says, listen, it takes a lot of money to keep Gandhi poor. And it was like a light went on. It's like, holy smokes, it's true. Like it, it took millions and millions of dollars to allow Gandhi not to have to worry about money or things. And it's the same with Mother Teresa. Like she came across as poverty, but she was surrounded by millions of dollars. Right. And I even talk about Jesus and the Buddha and, you know, other gurus who are admired for their austerity when in fact, you know, they're surrounded by financial support. So I just, I, I just try to bring money down to earth and that we, it's just an object of value. You know, instead of trading chickens now for a bottle of wine, we can trade $20, you know, piece of paper with 20 written on it for a bottle of wine. It's just a matter of, exchange of value. And I just try to take that, all that weird feeling and thinking stuff away from money. And it has helped some people indeed. Well, I'm one of them. I'm grateful for the book. Thank you so much. Listeners, we're going to link to that book as well in the show notes so you can get a copy of it. I highly, highly recommend the book, especially. Well, actually, can I, can I just say it's not available now because I've taken it down. Oh no. Uh, Cause but, you're going to change but, the title. Okay. Uh, Cause I'm going to change the title, but I, I, I'm offering a course on it right now Really, um, called Money is Spiritual, and you can get the PDF okay. that's included in the course. Super. It's an ebook. So at davidhaywardcourses.com, okay. um, you can get that course. And uh, of course, it's a little more expensive than the book, but I teach each lesson that's given there too. So it's just extra helpful. Wonderful. Well, we'll put a link to that course or to your course website in the show notes so folks can find it. Talk to us about the Lasting Supper. What is that and why did you start it? The first reason I started it was just because I was lonely. Like I, you know, I, I'd left the church and one of the things that Lisa and I experienced was this sudden loss of community and uh, our friends, because the pastor who replaced me made it known that it was better not to associate with me. So we were basically ostracized, I would say, and uh, we were very lonely. And I, and I still, I, I think maybe the pastor's heart in me was like, there must be other people like me who were experiencing this loneliness. Like people who leave the church, like if you're in the church, there's all kinds of resources for you. Or if you're in the world, what the church calls the world, if you're out there living a secular life or whatever, a normal life, there's all kinds of resources for that. But there's no resources for people who are traveling from one to the other. There's no resources for people who are leaving the church, trying to make it in the world. And I thought, I need to start providing this for people because basically we're people are leaving the church and they're like refugees with nothing 
but the clothes on their back. They have no tools to figure out how to make new friends, uh, how to be spiritual, how to make their marriage and family stay together and survive, how to make money in the world, how to, you know, all kinds of things, right? And so I just, uh, and and then even having a, a place to vent and be yourself among other people. So I started it, started the lastingsupper.com for people like that. And there's a couple hundred members and I don't push it a lot. And I mention it once in a while, like I am today. <laughs> I mention it once in a while because um, it is a real community. It's online. It's very mutual respect abounds. Uh, people are free to be themselves. We listen before we speak. We don't give advice. We don't correct. We don't rebuke. We don't give advice unless it's asked for. I send out a letter once a week just to the members, and we have a, a private Facebook group where we interact with one another, and that's basically it. And uh, it, it's really helping a lot of people. And the reason I don't, I don't push it is because I don't want it to grow uh, and get immense. You know, there is a, a monthly subscription fee to be a member, mainly because, uh, well, it takes a lot of work takes a lot of maintenance and development plus it's a handy way of keeping trolls out and uh, it just it's just working it's just really great i'm so glad you do that yeah i wish there was more like that actually and i've actually thought of uh you know instead of growing this group to larger numbers maybe if if there is more growth to start another group and you know maybe grow it to about a couple hundred and then limit it to that because i've noticed if it gets like around 250 then new problems arise. So, David, thank you so much for your uh, being so generous with your time today. You've been very patient with all of my questions. I've got one last question for you today. Okay. I hear from people in all different phases of the deconstruction journey. What do you feel is the most important thing that someone either starting off in deconstruction or right in the midst of all the chaos of deconstruction needs to hear from us as they journey down that road? Well, you're okay. <laughs> seriously that's my that's my word to everybody when they like i just got a message from somebody this morning i, I did a post this morning about a, a couple she's uh the cartoon is a, a husband and wife are sitting at the kitchen table having a coffee in the morning she says i don't think i want to go to church today i'm just not sure what i believe anymore and then he says what did you just say you hate me you're betraying your vows to me and are destroying our marriage and family <laughs> So basically I just I just tell people listen it's you're okay you're you're absolutely okay you know and I hear people from people every day who are freaking out because they're neither here nor there they're not in the church and they're not out they don't know if they believe or not they're they don't know who their friends are and who their friends aren't they don't know if their marriage is going to survive or if it is and, and it's just this a horrible in between place this no man's land of darkness and questions and insecurity and doubt and fear. <laughs> so I just basically say, listen, hey, you're okay. You're growing. This is what it feels like to grow. You're totally okay. It's completely valid. This is completely normal. And you know what? Often it just calms people right down. They're like, you mean other people experience this? This is normal? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. This is normal. I went through that too. And I'll tell you, my life's much better now than it was before. I'm much more peaceful and I'm much more happy than I've ever been. And you just hang in there, keep being true to yourself, keep putting one foot in front of the other, and you'll make it. I promise you. If you're determined, uh, if you persevere, you will prevail. I promise. There's just so much power in knowing that we're not alone. 
Absolutely. Uh, there's so much hope there. Healthy things grow, growing things change. Ah. This is a normal part of the faith journey. And it's as you becoming more who you've always been. I, I read something on your website about uh, it is up to us. It is our right and our responsibility to own our own spiritual path, to find our own spiritual path. Yeah. And I think that's such a great thing for us to remember. We do have that right. We do have that responsibility and nobody can do it for us. And it may ruffle some feathers and there may be some pushback. But like you said, we're OK. We're not alone. Yep. And we will get through it. Yep, absolutely. Wonderful. This conversation's been such a gift. Thank you so much for Thank you. joining Thank me today you and being me. part of the Messy Spirituality Podcast, especially this series. I was so eager to get your perspective, and I'm so grateful for it now. Messy Spirituality is perfect. I like that. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a take off the Mike Iaconelli book uh, that he put out years ago. He was one of my heroes. When I started off in youth ministry, he wrote a book called Getting Fired for the Glory of God. <laughs> he was a notorious envelope pusher. Oh, I know. And, uh, and I was so grateful for him. So yeah. Yeah. I'm grateful for you as well. Your work has made such a difference in my life. We're going to link to all of that. Uh, listeners, we're going to link to everything that we've mentioned here in the broadcast today, including his courses, The Lasting Supper, uh, his online store. And David, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Yeah, anytime. Thank you. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.